Take your Bibles, if you haven't turned already, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. We pick up at verse 11 this morning. And while some of you are turning, uh, I, I just appreciate uh, the reading of the Word before we actually preach because it prepares our hearts and our thoughts and our minds for the study of God's Word. And that in itself, what you just listened to, is a form of worship. That's worshiping God because you're reading His Word. And so as we get started this morning, we're going to look. Uh, we've been in this wonderful uh, Gospel of Matthew. Next week, we finish the Gospel of Matthew as we look at the crucified Christ. And uh, what, a, what a blessing this book has been. We started back in September last year, so nearly a year in Matthew's Gospel. And the Lord has, in our text where, we, where Carmen read, our Lord has now completed the three phases of the Jewish trial. Uh, let me give, that, give those three phases to you quickly. Uh, and by the way, not all, the, not all of these three are found in the Gospel of Matthew. We actually have to go to the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John to find uh, the passages that give us the complete picture. But uh, the first part of the trial of the Jews was the trial before Annas, and that's found in John 18, 13. We learn that Christ was first taken to Annas, who was a former high priest. He is like, Annas would be like the godfather of all the high priests, okay, after him, because literally he was the father to five, five of his sons became high priests. And right now, Caiaphas is his son-in-law who is the high priest. So he really is the godfather of all the high priests. Now, it's a corrupt uh, group, so the word godfather really fits well, you know, when you think about it. Um, so Pilate's predecessor removed Annas from being the high priest, and yet he held this high esteem among the corrupt priesthood. And uh, so Jesus was brought to Annas. Uh, he had no power or authority over Christ. Annas, at this point, is really the guy who oversees the commerce occurring in the temple. Annas would have been responsible for setting up the marketplace in the temple, selling pigeons and do turtle doves uh, in order for people to make sacrifice to God. And, of course, they would charge an exorbitant amount of money uh, for people to do that. And, really, he had no authority with Christ, but he met with him. And then the second trial for Jesus Christ, uh, and remember, these trials took place during the night. The second trial was before Caiaphas himself, who is the high priest. And in John 18, 24, it tells us that Jesus was sent bound to Caiaphas. The conspiracy was so well planned among the Jewish leaders and the Sanhedrin that when Jesus arrives from Annas to Caiaphas's house, all the Sanhedrin, 71 members, are already there at the house waiting for him. You see, again, what we learned last week, what we're going to see again this week, is Jesus Christ is completely pure, completely innocent of any and all charges brought against him. But the Jewish leaders who are corrupt are having to do whatever they can to put him to death. They've wanted to put him to death uh, going all the way back to chapter 13. They, they've wanted him dead, and now all of a sudden, they're doing whatever they can in the cloak of darkness to try and bring him to a verdict that he needs to die. So he's before the Caiaphas, and uh, 
And that happens sometime between 1 in the morning and 3 in the morning. Now, as I said last week, this type of trial that he was brought before Caiaphas, this type of trial was illegal on several fronts. Uh, First of all, criminal trials were not to be held at night. That's in the law. They cannot hold a criminal trial at night. And that's exactly what they're doing. And the reason for that is because someone who's being tried as a criminal the sentencing could be pretty severe. And so God never wanted the people to be without information about who was being charged and how he was being charged and given proper opportunity to defend himself. So in the nighttime, they could do whatever they want, and that's what they're doing. Secondly, trials in capital cases could only be held at the temple. They had to be held at the temple. Here they are at Caiaphas's house, the entire Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would meet, which were the Jewish leaders, they would meet, it would be like our Supreme Court, the Jewish Supreme Court, they would meet every day at the temple, and they would hold court, except on holy days, high days, holy days, okay? And so these guys are at Caiaphas's house holding their trial. And then thirdly, in cases of a verdict of death, there had to be a three-day period before you could actually put someone to death, Well, we know that while they're having this trial in the the cloak of darkness, by by the next day in the morning, Jesus Christ is taken and put on the cross. Jesus is put on the cross. So they didn't wait the three days. The first day, the Jews had to wait because it had to be in the light. Everybody saw that this person was being tried. The second day was after the trial, Uh, and it gave time for people to respond and say, wait a minute, you you have your facts wrong, or that's a false witness to this. And then the trial would begin again on the third day, a new trial. Or if nobody came forward, then they would carry out the sentencing of capital punishment if if need be. So, So the point is, all everything Jesus did was was holy, was just, he was innocent. He was pure, and everything that the Jewish leadership did was evil, wicked, disgusting. They, did, they, broke, every, they broke their own rules that they practiced and that they lived under. And so we see this terrible contrast that, Jesus, that Matthew draws up between Christ and those who accuse him. Now, the third trial of the Sanhedrin happened right at dawn, and that's where we pick up uh, in verse, in verse uh, 1 and 2, when the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. So that's when they said, okay, we've got to do this in the daylight, but let's do it right when the sun comes up because we don't want people to know about this because there were still people who loved Jesus who wanted to see him uh, uh, have a fair trial. But they went ahead and, and had their, their official legal trial right at dawn. And that's what was happening. So, so the Sanhedrin rule that Jesus, interestingly, the ones who accuse Jesus are the ones who execute the judgment of Jesus. Mm, isn't that interesting how that works? And so they say he's guilty and he needs to be put to death. So now the next thing is they have to go to the Romans. Why? Because while the Jerusalem was under Roman occupation, the Jews no longer had the power to execute someone. Capital punishment now was in the hands of the Romans. And so they had to appeal to Pilate, the governor of that region, 
in order to get this justice that they wanted served. And so now we enter uh, a whole different time here. It says in verse 2, they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. So what you see happening up to this point in time is first you had the Jewish trial, which was a religious trial, okay? Not, not holy, but it was religious, or it was full of holes. And, and now it goes to the Roman trial, which is a secular trial. And this is where they want him to carry out what they believe Jesus, uh, that he should be executed. So the religious trial versus the secular trial. Now, the, the Roman trial has three phases as well. Jesus is questioned by Pilate, and then he's sent over to Herod, who would be the tetrarch of the area of Galilee, where Jesus performed most of his miracles and most of his ministry. And then he would be sent back to Pilate, and Pilate would pass judgment. So Matthew's gospel consistently contrasts, again, these, these two pictures, a picture of pure innocence of Christ against the backdrop of a corrupt, wicked-hearted religious group. And this is what we see here. Now, verse 11, we pick up at verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, why would he ask that particular question? Because you wouldn't know it from Matthew's gospel. Where did he come up with Jesus being the king of the Jews? You would have to go to John chapter 18, verse 29, where it says, so Pilate went outside to the religious leaders and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? You brought him to me. What has he done? What's the accusation? Listen to the response of the Jewish leaders. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So Pilate asked a very specific, straightforward question. What are the accusations? They didn't answer his question. They actually turned it on Pilate as if, who do you think you are to question us? We would never bring him to you unless he was guilty. See, they weren't looking for a trial. They were looking for an execution. They didn't want Pilate to bring a right justice. They wanted Pilate to deliver a judgment, the judgment that they've already given. And so this was something, though, that Pilate saw as a legal opportunity. I need to know the facts here. Verse 31 of uh, John 18, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So the only thing they told Pilate so far is that whatever he did, it was worthy of death. So that basically brings in the whole picture of blasphemy before God. Jesus must have blasphemed God. When in fact, it's impossible for Jesus to blaspheme God because he is God. That would be God blaspheming himself. And the reality is they're blaming and accusing Jesus of blaspheming God they're the ones who are blaspheming God by not believing in God. Does that make sense? This is a crooked trial from the beginning to the end. Jesus going to the cross of Calvary came at the hands of evil people. And some of us are sitting here right now and going, man, these guys are rotten. Listen, that's you and I. We put Christ on the cross. Before we're saved, we are lost in our sin. We are of a depraved mind. We don't think right thoughts about God. 
No man comes to the Father except the Holy Spirit draw him. Nobody's good enough to come to God. If you think somehow that you're saved today because you did good things and you decided on your own, of your own volition, to turn your life over to God, you're sadly mistaken because you were a sinner. There was no way to God. Zero. The only way to God is if the Holy Spirit, who is God, convicted you and wooed you and drew you to the Father. Does that make sense? So salvation doesn't come by good works. Salvation doesn't come by merit. It doesn't come by good you know, popularity and, and having a, you know, a, a, a famous name in the community. Listen, you only come to God when God draws you. These men were not drawn by God. These men are doing their own thing. You and I are just like them. We're the ones that put Christ on the cross. We're, this is a picture of us before Jesus saved us. Aren't you glad when you know the truth about sin and the fall of man, aren't you glad that God has the next step in the gospel story of redemption, going after man and redeeming man and drawing men back to himself? Amen? When God created us in the garden, everything he made was good. And he created man and woman. We were good. There was no sin. We had fellowship with the Father. It's the way it should be. But it was our sins that took us from God. And God went after us. He came hard after us. And he found us and he has redeemed us. He's found a way to redeem us. So there's two things playing out in this narrative that I want to say. First of all is the actual literal story. These men are putting Jesus to death. These men are the guilty ones. But the story behind that story is, it's a picture of us. All of us put Jesus to death. In our sin, we would not choose God. We can't choose God. So God came after us, amen? I love it. I love it. And so Pilate said to them in verse 31, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. He's actually throwing his hands up. I can't believe, you know, this is crazy. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So here's the, the, the story, the literal story is, Pilate says, I don't want any part of this. You go ahead and carry out, I'll let you carry out your own execution. But they wanted this to be legal so the people would not be upset. So they said, no, you have to do it. And of course, the way the Romans um, execute uh, capital punishment is by the cross, which is the way God planned. So even though they are the ones who are putting Jesus on the cross, they're actually playing into God's perfect, divine, providential plan of salvation. If I can just remind you, in John 3, 14 and 15, it says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He has to be lifted up on the cross. It's through the cross that we come to salvation in Christ. John 12, 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, when I'm put on a cross and lifted up, 
I will draw all people to myself. So everything's playing exactly as God the Father planned. Jesus must die on a cross. So Jesus is handed over to the Romans for sentencing. The problem is Pilate wants a fair trial. The Jews don't want a fair trial. Just judge the man so we can put him on the cross. And then you put him on the cross. And Pilate's like, "Uh, this whole thing is something's wrong. It's not right. And I want no part of it. Now, this is where Matthew's gospel gives us a condensed version of the Roman trial. You see, he picks up the Roman trial where Jesus appears before Pilate. But this is the second time that he appears before Pilate. Matthew's gospel doesn't include the first time he came before Pilate or the time he spent before Herod the Tetrarch. Okay, Now he's brought back to Pilate for the third, for the third trial. Of the, of the Romans. And so, he, so Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Okay, now that's based upon Luke 23, verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate and began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Did Jesus ever forbid them to give tribute to Caesar? Jesus said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. They're lying out through their teeth. And saying that he is himself Christ a king. The reason they're raising that before Pilate is because that would be a threat to Pilate. More importantly, a threat to Caesar if somebody claims to be a king, especially an insurrectionist Jew. So they think they're trying, what they're trying to do is corner Pilate into carrying out their wishes. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And verse 11 says, And Jesus answered, You have said so. In other words, they told you that I am the king of the Jews. They told you that. You already have that information. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. So, Pilate was evidently not alarmed by the charges brought that he was the king of the Jews because Pilate looks at Jesus, and what does he see? He sees a man, a man who's not dressed in nice clothes. There's nothing about him that looks royal. The Bible says in Isaiah, the prophecy of the Messiah coming, that he was not a good-looking guy. There was nothing about him that would attract you to him. In fact, if anything, it would turn you from him. If Jesus walked, the the Jesus, the incarnate Christ in flesh and blood, walked in the door as we're fellowshipping, nobody would want to run over and meet this guy. Some of you might even stay away from him, thinking maybe he's a homeless guy. I don't know anything about this guy. He certainly does. There's nothing about him that would draw me to him. Pilate looks at him and goes, this guy, king of the Jews, seriously? And see, this is where you and I as believers need to remember. Jesus, this is the first time that Jesus came to earth, right? He did, listen, very important for us in this day. Jesus, the first time, did not come to establish an earthly kingdom. He did not come to earth the first time to rule and reign. He came to seek and save lost people. Some of us 
are easily swayed and caught up in trying to get the right government, the right leadership for our nation, for the world. That's not why Jesus came. Some people are caught up in reforms. We've got to reform socially in this area, in this area, and they got all these causes. Jesus didn't fight for the slave. He didn't fight for the uh, woman, for women, for women's rights. He personally treated women with great respect, but he didn't start any reform causes to try and change things. He didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom or a government. He came to seek and save lost people. Now, let me say this to you. The next time he comes, he's coming on the clouds, and he's going to establish an earthly reign for a thousand years on this earth. Hallelujah. It will be a whole different ballgame the next time you see him. In fact, Revelation is very clear that the Jesus now doesn't look anything like a little tiny baby lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. Doesn't look anything like a Jesus who's sitting eating with the publicans and the tax, you know, the tax collectors and the sinners. Today, Jesus has hair white like wool. He has eyes that are laser like a burning fire revelation john uh, describes he has a voice like niagara falls the jesus today who was resurrected who is glorified sitting at the right hand of the father he is not the same jesus that came the first time and that jesus is coming back and when he comes back every knee will bow every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father so don't get so caught up in the causes of the world today. I'm not saying we shouldn't feed the poor. I'm not saying we shouldn't go and visit the prisoner. I'm not saying we shouldn't put clothes on the backs of those who have very little. We should do those things, but don't take on the cause and lose the reason why Jesus came that we're still living in in the church age, and that is to seek and save lost people. We're here to see presidents get saved. We're here to see the Supreme Court get saved. Pray that way. We're here to see Congress, the Senate, the House get saved. I know that's a big prayer. But it can happen. God can do anything. See, we're on the side of wanting the gospel to be played out. And the gospel is not about social justice. The gospel is first and foremost about seeking and saving lost people. In your life, that's what you ought to spend. Think about all the energy and time that we spend on so many things, worried about so many things, if we would just give a little bit of time to praying for salvation for people and then going out and sharing Christ and spending time in that arena. Don't you think the Holy Spirit of God would take the seed that we throw and begin to bring forth a crop out of the ground? This is what it's about, church. Then Pilate said to him in verse 13, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer. See, Jesus didn't need to, he didn't need to defend himself. He wasn't guilty of anything. 
He knew the Father's simply playing out exactly what needs to happen, so they'll put him on the cross. So Jesus doesn't need at this point to say anything. And he didn't. I love that about our Lord. He didn't caught up in, get caught up in some earthly game trying to save his life. He came to die for us. But he gave no, him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. I imagine that that governor had never seen someone brought up for capital punishment charges who didn't do everything they could to plead their cause. Please don't take my life, please. you know, And whatever they would say, he's never seen somebody who capital charges have been brought against him. And the man just stands quietly. What do you have to say for yourself? I let the Father speak for me. You don't understand that, Pilate, but one day it's going to make a lot of sense. And that's what he did. I love what Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon, he explained why Pilate was greatly amazed at Jesus when Jesus wouldn't answer any of the charges. He had seen and captured Jews the fierce courage of fanaticism, but there was no fanaticism in Christ. He had also seen in many prisoners the meanness which will do or say anything to escape from death. But he saw nothing of that about our Lord. He saw in him unusual gentleness and humility combined with majestic dignity. He beheld submission blended with innocence. That was our Lord when the pressure was on. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Because God the Father ordered it up. The will of the Father was that Jesus would suffer and die. Isaiah went on to say, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So in verse 15, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing for the crowd one prisoner, any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had, and why would, it, why would Pilate do that? Well, first of all, understand historically, when Pilate came into Jerusalem as the ruler back in like 2 or 6 AD, uh, he made some terrible decisions. One of them, I'll just give you one of them. One of them was he came in with this pompous attitude and this big, and he had the seal of the eagle from, the, from Romans. Well, the Jews saw that as a symbol. That, that is an idol. They were ticked off mad at Pilate for that. He blew it several times with the Jews. So now he's wanting the Jews to win. And so every year at Passover, he would release to the Jews one of their prisoners, somebody, an insurrectionist that the Romans had captured. So they would re he would release that person back to the Jews. They would all cheer, and Pilate kind of came out of it looking good. And so now we see this playing out. They, they had, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? So what did, what did Pilate just do? He's trying to release Jesus from the charges brought against him by the leaders, okay? He doesn't want to do anything to Jesus. He doesn't see this man as even a threat to the Jews, much less to the Romans. And, uh, and so he says, I'm going to put him up against Barabbas, who was the worst criminal held in prison. That would be like saying, to, uh, you know, in, in the last century, saying, okay, who should we release, Jesus or Adolf Hitler? 
They chose Adolf Hitler. That's what they did. Mark 15, 7 says, tell us what made Barabbas notorious. He was one of, the, of several insurrectionists who had committed murder. We would today regard a man like Barabbas as something like a revolutionary terrorist. What Pilate should have done was release Jesus, not putting before the people against Barabbas. He should have just known this man's not done anything wrong and just released him. He could see the strength and dignity of Jesus. He knew that he had no criminal background or he was not a revolutionary. He knew that there was no just charge brought against him. He also knew that the reason they brought him against him was be, him against them was because they were envy. It was envy. The Jewish leaders hated Jesus. Why? Because the people loved him. He was changing the system. He was destroying their religious system. Jesus twice at the beginning and the end of his ministry went into the temple courtyard and took out all the tables where they were changing uh, the money of the people and charging people too much. Jesus was a threat to them. He was destroying their lives. He saw that Jesus was a man so at peace with his God that he didn't need to answer a single accusation. Besides, he's already declared Jesus as innocent. He said in Luke 23, 4, I find no fault in this man. He should have just released him. But he couldn't. Because now the people were getting charged up by the religious leaders. You know what it's like when a mob gets hold of some information. They've even had... Uh, interviews street interviews with people who were part remember back a year ago and all the rioting and all that was going on in major cities and they would go and they would interview people who are out on the streets you know and just mad and angry hey uh, so why why are you part of this what 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 wrong are you trying to see made right some people had no answer they just were part of the the mob they just saw a fight and they wanted to be part of it Pilate had the opportunity to release Christ. He didn't because of the pressure. They pitted Barabbas against Jesus. That's an easy call for the people. That shows you just how much the people have been lathered up in hatred against Jesus by the Jewish leaders. So verse 20, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. This is the second time. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who's called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? They didn't, again, just like when he asked the Jewish leaders, what accusation do you bring? They, they didn't have one. When he said, what has he done? They shouted all the more, let him be crucified. We don't want truth we want an execution. So when Pilate saw that he was going, gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. That leaves us the picture that really it's just the Jews who put Jesus on the cross. It looks as if Pilate's innocent of the whole thing. He's not. He's no more innocent of putting Christ on the cross than you or I. He's a sinner. He's part of the fallen nature of man. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Huh. 
Go ahead, let his blood be on us. But I got to just say this. Be thankful. Be thankful that his blood is on you. Because only with the blood on you, only you being guilty of sin, can Christ become your Savior. If you're here today and you say, no, I'm innocent. I, don't know. I, was, I didn't participate in this. I didn't do this to Jesus. As if somehow you've done no wrong. You're not even a candidate for salvation. Jesus said, I didn't come to save the well. I came to save the sick. If you think you're well, if you think that you're not a sinner, if you think that by good works you're, that's enough for God to let you in heaven, then when Jesus returns, you will kneel and you will bow and you will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But the only problem is you won't be going to heaven. You are setting yourself up for the ultimate rejection to hear Jesus say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, the only way that you and I can be saved is to understand God's just law for sin, that somehow, some way, sin has to be paid for. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. The law states it. And if you don't think that you're guilty, then you are lawless in the eyes of Christ. And he said again, verse 26, then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, they delivered him to be crucified. By the way, when, when he was brought to Pilate the second time, Jesus had already been beaten until he was unrecognizable. He had not been, you know, he had not gone through the Roman uh, 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 persecution and suffering yet, but coming out of Herod's court, they beat him. They, they covered his head, and the soldiers stood around and started slugging him in the face from different directions, laughing at him. Oh, if you're God, why don't you know which direction the blow's coming from? So when he stood before Pilate, and Pilate said, this is the king? He was probably pummeled. I mean, he's swollen. Could you imagine what his face must have looked like? The suffering he'd already endured before he even got to the cross. And they said, we want Barabbas. And so Pilate released Barabbas. The cross that Jesus hung on, I have to think, was probably intended for Barabbas. We know that the Romans were going to put two insurrectionists on the cross. next, to, And then there was a third cross. It was probably for Barabbas. He was the worst criminal. He was the murderer. Could you imagine Barabbas in a dark prison cell with a small window waiting to be crucified, listening intently at the, at the window? He could hear the crowd gathered before Pilate, not for, uh, which would, be, by the way, would be at Fort Antonius, just outside the city. And, and, and perhaps he could not hear Pilate ask, which of the two do you want me to release to you? But I'm sure he heard the crowd scream out, Barabbas! He probably didn't hear when they said, which of the two do you want? And why then shall I, what shall I, what shall I do with Jesus Christ? 
He didn't hear that question, but he probably heard the whole crowd scream out, crucify him. Barabbas probably in his cell knowing it's over. I'm going to die today. And the soldiers coming to that prison and opening that door and saying, you are released even though you're guilty. Another man who is innocent is going to take your place. If anybody on that day understood the cross, it would have been Barabbas. The question is, do we really understand the cross? The substitutionary penal death that Christ paid for you and for me. He took our place. He atoned for us. Here's the question, see? Just as Pilate was, was brought, or Jesus was brought before Pilate, and then what is Pilate to do with Jesus? Here's the question. What are you to do with Jesus? Today, right now, who is Jesus to you? Some of you might say, well, I think he's a good man. Well, guess what? That good man claims to be God. That good man suffered and died for your sins. For you to reject him as God is to reject his suffering on the cross for your life, which means you're left with nothing but eternity in hell. That's not a good place to be. Who is Jesus to you? Well, oh, he's, he's the Son of God. Okay, that's true. He is the Son of God. So let's, let's make it personal. So how has the Son of God changed your life? If there was a time before you really received him as the Son of God in your heart, how are you different now? Or are you the same person as before? We make excuses, don't we, for some of the besetting sins in our life. Well, my, my, my father was like that. My mother was like that. But the Son of God can change that. You don't have to live out the sins of your parents. How has Christ changed you? And more importantly, what does a personal relationship with Jesus look like in your life? How is that different for you every day? When you rise in the morning, what's the first thought of your day? If Jesus is the Son of God and you have received by grace through faith the work of the Son of God on the cross for your sins, to me, you are going to live the rest of your days in absolute submission to him with absolute appreciation for what he's done for you. Amen? How can you not rise in the morning and the first thing out of your lips, out of your mouth, out of your mind is Jesus? As the Holy Spirit lives in you now, how are you changing? Are you becoming, becoming kinder? Are you less judgmental? Are you no longer holding accounts against people? How has Christ changed you? We should all be changing. I didn't say you're perfect. If I asked your spouse if you're perfect, they, they, they would tell me the honest truth, wouldn't they? And then, of course, if I asked you if they're perfect, then you would give the honest truth on them. Nobody's perfect. We all, every day, fall short. 
But there's a change. It's like the woman whose husband, uh, he was a, just a wild guy growing up. And he got saved, and she's a believer. He's not. And he cusses like a sailor. And she's prayed for him for years. And finally, the guy comes to Jesus Christ. And uh, one day, she's sitting in the backyard, and he's out mowing. And he takes the mower and runs over a stump. Mower engine dies. And uh, he just stops and looks at it and takes it and fixes the blade and puts it back on and goes about his mowing. And she walks into him after that evening. She walks up to him and says, hey, you're not the same. There is no way that the old you would have not cussed God out when that lawnmower stopped. You've changed. See, that's the cool thing. That when Christ is in us, the Holy Spirit is working in us, conforming us to Christ. We just look different from year to year to year. You're still far from perfect, but you're not the same person. Is that you? What are you doing with Jesus? Is he just a thought in your head? Is he just some kind of a a fairy tale figure and you go along with what the church says because that's the culture that I live in and you go to church and you're if you go to church people think you're a good person and I need the kudos for when I go to work I need people to think I'm a good or are you really serious about Christ much to think about let's pray father This, this narrative in the Bible is deeply convicting because we can see ourselves here. First of all, just giving thanks to you that you didn't quit on us, even though we were the ones who denied you, who put Christ on the cross, yet you still fulfilled your will to come after us, that at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, <laughs> us. So we're thankful today. But Lord, maybe there are people here today who have truly not received the Son of God as their personal Savior. They know you, Jesus, to be God, but it's not personal. There hasn't been any change in their life. I pray that by the Holy Spirit you would woo and draw them to yourself. And today they would release the sins that they've held on to and they would turn to you, and by faith they would believe in you personally. And that each day from this day forward, the Holy Spirit would do his work in them and just as he's doing it in us. And they would continue to grow. Their marriages would be stronger than ever. Their parenting skills would increase. Their patience would go up. Lord, that we would see change. That's what we're after. And we give you all the praise and glory that not only... Are we able to see uh, change in this world? But we know that in the next world to come, we will rule with you. Oh, how wonderful that will be to know that we belong to Jesus Christ. We are members, citizens of his kingdom, and we give you all the glory and praise for it. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Please stand if you will. And I'd like for the 
elders and those who like to pray with others to come forward. If you'd like prayer this morning for any reason, please come. Uh, we have requests of prayer for many people. Uh, I got a, a text last night uh, that Pastor Trent Travis, he was over at First Church of God when I was there. He now started a plant up in uh, uh, Johnson City, Tennessee, and that he and his family have COVID, but that he's struggling. He has pneumonia as well. So let's please keep him in prayer, if you will. And there are many in our body who have been facing COVID. We need to pray for them as well. Okay, anyone who's struggling with that, and those of you who've had it, you know what they're up against. So let's keep them in prayer. I just learned this morning from a member of our church of a man that I got to know a little bit, and this person who shared with me knows him very well, and he spent a long time in the hospital on a ventilator before he recovered. So it's a serious thing. Let's keep people in prayer. Amen? Amen. God bless you as you come forward, as you leave. Please don't walk out the door without fellowship first. Let's be the church of Jesus Christ. God bless you.